Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. On this episode, we're diving into issues pertaining to land recognition, stewardship, and the relationship between community institutions like Woodmere and the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. At Woodmere, we're dedicated to being community partners and engaging outside of our gallery walls with the natural environment in new and exciting ways, and in ways that reflect our local history. On the grounds of nearby McGuire Hall, our latest addition to Woodmere, which expands the footprint of our green space from six acres to 10 acres, we're particularly focused on land as a concept with a history and a shared future. Our idea is to use the land as a platform for education and opening the mind to the different histories it contains. As part of this process, we've started to collaborate with members of the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania, and we recently signed their Treaty of Renewed Brotherhood. On the day we signed the treaty, I sat down and recorded a conversation with Shelley DePaul and her son, Adam DePaul, from the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. Shelley is the organization's clan mother, director of language and treaty signer liaison, and Adam is the organization's chief of education and storykeeper. As you're about to hear, our conversation starts with Adam, telling us about the history behind the treaty that the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania has facilitated over the years with community partners like Woodmere. And then you'll hear more stories from Shelley and Adam, as well as unique perspectives that add to our understanding of the land we steward. So the treaty began in 2002. In that year, we decided to take what we came to call the Rising Nation River Journey. And the river journey celebrated and was a way for the treaty to travel down the river. So we gathered up at the top of the Delaware River, up in Hancock, New York, just above the Forks, and we paddled all the way down the Delaware River to Cape May, where it dumps into the ocean. And all along the river, we would stop to hold signings of the treaty. And um, we had just wonderful organizations, some with whom we were already working for a very long time, environmental organizations like the Delaware River Keepers, the Audubon Society, and, and many others. And at the end of that first journey in 2002, we ended up with 17 organizations, environmental organizations, historical societies, academic institutions, who had signed the treaty and it was such a wonderful event that we decided to do it every four years. So we've been conducting the journey and the treaty signing every four years since. This past August in 2022, we celebrated our 20-year anniversary. It was our sixth journey since we do it every four years. And at the end of that journey, 
the most recent, we had over 130 organizations and well over 300 individuals that came together to sign the treaty. Just to give you a little bit of background on how it all began, we had been partnering with a number of organizations up and down the Delaware River, as Adam said, environmental organizations, uh, Audubon societies, but also elder societies, many different churches, all denominations. Uh, friends were quite a few friends organizations. And so, you know, since we already had these partnerships going, we decided, well, you know, why not just start a treaty? And so the treaty that we started in 2002 is a non-binding treaty. It's not legal. It's a gesture of friendship among ourselves so that we can work together. And um, we have a variety of types of treaty signers. And so we all work together to take care of the land the river, and each other with the churches that we have, the different denominations, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, a lot of elder societies would like to take care of our elders. So there's a lot we do, but I'd say probably half of what we do is working as caretakers for the river and working with Audubon societies, river conservancies, and that sort of thing. Well, it's incredibly exciting for me, for Woodmere to be part of the treaty as well, because we're an art museum on 10 acres of land, and caring for the land is something that's a top priority for Woodmere. And we're very aware that where we are in northwest Philadelphia was a place that was heavily populated by the Lenape before Europeans came to this part of, of the world. And there's a history that's complicated and fraught and difficult looking back, but it's been wonderful to work with both of you and, and Adam, I know you longer, but you know, you've really inspired me in the philosophy with which you build these partnerships that seems like the treaty is all about building these partnerships to me in a like you said, it's not legally binding, it's spiritual. It's a partnership that it represents. And that's exciting to me. I learned about the treaty in the context of also, Adam, learning from you, and again, in your capacity as storyteller, how the Lenape tell the story of history, where things were, how things evolved, and how we look to the future together. And I've been thinking about the story of the Four Crows since I heard it from you for the first time. And to me, the treaty is very much an extension of that in my mind. I would love to hear you tell that story. This is a story that came down to our nation through several different elders. To the extent of my knowledge, this is a story that is told within our nation from our elders, the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. I have not heard of our other nations across the country telling this story. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. So just with that clarification, this story did come down to us through several different elders who had no contact. Their families, as far as we know, had no contact through their lineage here. And it's very short, and it goes like this. It was said a fox will be loosed upon the earth. It was also said four crows will come. The first crow, he flew the way of harmony with creator. The second crow, he tried to clean the world, but he became sick and died. 
The third crow, he saw what happened to his brother, and he hid. The fourth crow will fly the way of harmony with Creator again. Caretakers, we will live together on the earth. And that's all. But there's a lot in there. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot in there. You know, that's the story, but it's a story that refers to different historical periods. And when I heard it, you know, I, I work in an art museum. I mean, I'm always thinking about what are the stories that art tells? And here at Woodmere, I think a lot about our landscape paintings from the 19th century, one of the most wonderful galleries that we have. We call it our parlor gallery. It was the parlor of the Victorian house, the place where the family would receive guests. It was kind of the visiting room. So now we call it the parlor gallery. And there are paintings there that our founder collected by the great landscape painters of the 19th century, most of them from Philadelphia. And these are artists who lived in the city. They were urban and they painted nature and they sought out scenes, sunsets, sunrises, extraordinary weather moments where they felt they could feel the spirit of the creator in nature and be one with that. And so I think of where those artists want to bring us and I think of this idea of the first crow and living in peace and harmony with nature through the vision of these artists. Tell me what the first crow means historically for the Lenape. So one of the possible contexts of the four crows, back in 2008, we put a wonderful exhibit together with the University of Pennsylvania. And we decided to use the story of the four crows as a framework to tell our history and our presence in four stages. So we relate the first crow, the crow who flew in harmony with Creator, to our people's harmony here amongst themselves before the colonists arrived. The second crow who tried to clean the world but became sick and died, we relate that to the period of colonial contact, both the initial well-meaning relationships and then, of course, the drastic southward turn from there. Again, I think of these great paintings that we have in the gallery downstairs, and I think about this period of the second crow and the violence of it and the displacement. And, you know, these are artists who are showing the vastness of the land. And I can't help but feel the absence of the Lenape people, especially because these are artists who are trying to embrace the land in a natural kind of way. It's kind of what makes the art complicated. It's not just what an artist shows sometimes, but it's what they don't show. And to me, this is something that we, as European Americans, <laughs> kind of need to acknowledge in our past. You can't heal if you don't acknowledge what's happened. I mean, does that seem fair? And I want to give it back to you and talking about the second crow and the, and the third one. Yeah, I think what you said is completely accurate. And I think that actually brings us around to the fourth crow as well. So just to finish the framework, the third crow who saw what had happened to his brother and hid that 
zooms in from all of our people down to the Lenape who remained here in our homeland. Because the second crow was the time of the fracturing of our nation by colonialism. And that, of course, involved the forced removals and the diaspora. Mm -hmm. So the third crow talking about being in hiding, that is our people who remained here in the Lenape Hoking, in our homeland. But in order to do so, had to hide our culture. It was not okay to be Lenape in public. So the third row mm -hmm. is our period of hundreds of years of here passing our ways down in secret. And then the fourth crow who flies in harmony with creator again is where we like to think of ourselves today, a time where it's finally relatively safe to come back out to let people know that we are still here, that many of us never left. And to begin embarking on a new harmony. And that is something that I really like to emphasize because the first crow talks about harmony and the last crow talks about harmony. It can almost seem circular, but this is not a circular story. We're not talking now about going back to the first crow, about you know rediscovering the time before we had met what are today our neighbors. That crow has flown. That time is gone. The fourth crow talks about a new time of harmony where we will be able to come out, correct the wrongful history that has told that we were all killed or removed from our homelands, and move forward in a good way of partnership and respect with all of our new neighbors that are here. And I think what you said about first having to acknowledge the past before we can move on in the present, well, really, I think that embraces the whole story. In order to pursue the harmony of the fourth crow, we need to acknowledge the second crow. We need to acknowledge the third crow. We don't need to dwell and remain living there, but we have to acknowledge that in order to live in harmony and find this new relationship with our friends and neighbors today. But just going back to the second crow, as I looked at these paintings downstairs, they truly do have a spiritual component to them. And you must remember that the Lenape people lived here for at least 13,000 years. That's just archaeological evidence, probably more. And so the spirit of the people is there. And I really think that if anyone sits silently there, I mean, I've had many people, the Delaware Water Gap is extremely sacred to us. It's the Muncie creation story comes out of there. It was so sacred to the Lenape that on pain of death, no one passed through there without a Lenape escort. So when we do the river journey, we make sure that the Lenape lead through there. But I have sort of my special prayer spot there uh, up in the woods at a place called Cold Air Cave. But I've heard many people on the river as we're going through that section say, I can really feel the ancestors here. I can really feel it. And so you know, who doesn't? And when I look at those paintings, I sort of see the same spirituality that our people had toward that landscape. And who knows if the ancestors weren't speaking to them or they just didn't feel the reverence for the land that was there for so many thousands of years. If you really want to understand Native Americans, you have to understand one thing. And that is that they don't view the world as nations of 
individual human beings all over the planet. They viewed the world as the nations that were created, the winged ones, the four-leggeds, the hmm. sea creatures, the creepy crawlers, the plant people, the grandfather rocks. That is how they viewed the world. And so all of the two-leggeds are one race, are one nation. And so we don't revere ourselves above any of those nations. We have an amazing respect. And if you look at these natural objects as equals, a great amount of consciousness comes to you. And I don't mm -hmm. want to get hokey or anything, but they do speak to you. <laughs> you know, if you open yourself up to this tree or this bird or this whatever. So that is what I always tell people is the mo most important, you know, because they'll say, oh, that, that Indian's crazy sitting over there talking to a tree. Well, <laughs> yeah, we have a very, very close connection with all of nature and do not see ourselves as more important, where would we be without the bird nation? Where would we be without the bugs? We wouldn't. <laughs> so that's just an important part of understanding how we view, you know, our surroundings. Well, and that is so important in terms of what you, with your 13,000 years of Lenape history, can teach us, the sort of European people who have diaspora across the planet and are here because look where we are today. And again, I, I work in an art museum, so I always come back to art. Do you know what I mean? And I think of these artists in the galleries downstairs and they're trying to get away from the industrial city. And I think it was beautiful what you said about how you really can feel that 13,000 years of history resonating in that nature. And you referred to the picture, you know, of the Delaware Water Gap or the Susquehanna River, and it probably is near the Delaware Water Gap there. But, you know, we, we don't know exactly where it is, or at least I don't. Maybe some people do. But, you know, I, I feel that this era of the fourth crow is so important, A, because there's so much that we can all learn from each other. But, you know, what is more important on the planet today than preserving this planet? And we have to do that together. And we can only do that if we create these kinds of partnerships where it becomes an active part of who we are, what we do, how we talk, how we think, that it just has to be part of our beings. Otherwise, there's not going to be a planet for our children and grandchildren to exist on, with, in, you know, through together. And so, you really struck on the mm. most important thing there, and that is the reason we do this is for our children. We don't make a move unless we consider how it will affect the next seven generations. That's a Native American precept. And so, I mean, look at our, there are children out there. Not, I'm just not talking about Native. I'm talking about all of our younger generation. You know, they know what's going on. Many of them are trying to get together and work together to save the planet in one way or another, all kinds of groups out there. So there is that consciousness. And so eventually, you know, it's possible that that consciousness will win over. I mean, just looking at how the river journey has blossomed. I mean, in addition to the 100 and almost 40 now organizations, we have 336 individuals who signed the treaty. And they just keep saying, well, we didn't know you were here. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are. So, yeah, I, I hold, I'm one of those who hold hope for the future because I've seen many, many of our children these days. And they're the ones I think of 
They're mm-hmm. the ones that, that are even in our own generation. You know, passing down the culture is a very important thing to Native Americans. That's why we always have a keeper. Adam's our story keeper, so it doesn't, the stories aren't lost, but it's his responsibility to find the next story keeper, as it is my responsibility to find the next language keepers. So I'm so excited about the courses that I'm having now because I do now have people proficient enough mm-hmm. in the language to be keepers. So it is our children we have in mind. And a lot of what you just said brings to mind that the fourth crow, it really is a harmony. It's mutual. I know some people who are very conscious of the wrongs that have happened to our people in the second and third crows. Sometimes they approach the treaty signing or the fourth crow like it's a time for us to apologize to you and kind of be subservient or something like that. And again, while it is vitally important to acknowledge the past, that's not what the fourth crow is about. It's about coming together in a harmony, in a friendship that is beneficial to all of us. And some of the things you mentioned, our ancestors lived in a different world. Uh, We have challenges today that our ancestors didn't No, of course they had challenges that we will never know but our ancestors never had to deal with microplastics industrial pollution fracking these are kind of new challenges that we face and also of course our pre-diaspora our first crow ancestors didn't have to deal with their erased history that happened through colonialism And the treaty asks two main things of its signers. It asks that they acknowledge the Lenape people as the indigenous people of this land and help promote that knowledge and tell that story however they can. And it asks that they, in whatever capacity they can, act as good stewards of the environment. And through some of the amazing partnerships that we've established through the treaty, the treaty and our partners have really helped us navigate what those things mean in the contemporary world. On the environmental side, just as one for instance, some of our oldest treaty signers, our original treaty signers, were the friends of the Wissahickon and the Lower Delaware Wild and Scenic. And today I'm actually our nation's representative on the board of directors for the Friends of the Wissahickon and on the Council for Lower Delaware Wild and Scenic. You know, they have offered that space to us so we can continue our timeless role as stewards into what that means today. And the same with telling our story, the same with education. I mean, you folks here, you have already more than fulfilled the call of a treaty signer in some of the wonderful programs we've already done. Just having us here, giving us a chance to tell our story, that is promoting awareness, that is correcting the wrongful history. And it's also through our partners. Like I said, you you jumped the gun. You started doing those wonderful things before (laughs) you signed the treaty. But it's our treaty signers that also help us correct that history. You know, we have to join our voices together. And I think that's what we seek to do at a museum, is create a place where the voices can be heard. You know, the voices of artists that speak through the art and the voices of people who connect through the art and are living in the world today. And 
I don't think there's anything more important than clean water, clean air, and clean earth for the future of existence. And I love that you bring up the Friends of the Wissahickon, an organization that I love to death. And I didn't know about your involvement there, Adam, which is wonderful. And Ruffian, who's the director there, is a good friend and really wonderful. So we're going to have to bring her into the podcast, too, because <laughs> um, Ruffian is fantastic yeah. and everyone else there at the Friends of the Wissahickon. But I, I'd love to talk about art and nature and responding to you about, you know, how do we interpret the past in the present? Because, you know, the artists of the 19th century, they looked out on nature and they create a window on nature. I think that people today have a very different attitude. We're not just looking out at nature, like we are in nature, like you are on the river. Sure, you're getting wet and your feet are in the mud. You smell it, you hear it. Yeah, Grandmother Shelley is definitely the person to talk Ah. about that. But just before I pass the mic over there, I wanted to bring up something you reminded me of. You had played with a couple different prepositions when you were talking about nature. You said in nature, on nature, around nature. And in the Lenape language, there's no word that translates into nature or Hmm. environment Mm -hmm. in the way we think of them in the colonial sense. If you think about it, when you say those words, and it really becomes evident when you start playing with those prepositions, in our European tradition, we think of nature as something you are in, or you are on, or whatever preposition you use, it's something other than yourself. There's <laughs> you and the nature or the environment that you can separate with. That doesn't translate in the Lenape language. We don't have a word that separates all of our relations from ourselves. Like I said, that just came to me while you were talking, but I think it goes back to a lot of what we were talking about before. We must be of the same mind. (laughs) Actually, I heard this first from a rabbi. I have um, a part of a number of interfaith organizations and have been invited to speak, and Sister Mary Elizabeth Clark invited me to speak at one of hers from the Sisters of St. Joseph here in uh, Chestnut Hill. So one of the first people that got up was a rabbi, and uh, we were talking about earth issues and environmental issues. And the first thing he said was, we need to stop using the word environment mm-hmm. because that assumes that you're viewing nature as something outside or around yourself. And mm-hmm. like I said, the reason I brought up the native view of the world is that you truly have to really believe or realize that we are part of nature and that we communicate with all these parts mm-hmm. of nature. So anyway, we're thinking that at the exact same time. Well, language is so interesting. Being conscious of the intricacies of language and the, how it is that the formulation of language is a measure of how you view the relationships that govern the universe. And so, I mean, it's so interesting for me that you would pick up in my language, in nature, out there in nature mm-hmm. or standing in nature or environment. And that's really something that gives me something to think about in terms of how am I going to be thinking about my language going forward? And, you know, and that's a gift. That really is. And so I thank you for that. And speaking of yeah. language, if yeah. you learn the language, the language encompasses that. 
I mean, rather than masculine and feminine, like Indo-European languages, where a chair is masculine and a sofa is feminine, don't ask me why. Mm-hmm. You memorize it. But in Native American languages, you have animate and inanimate. And so the things that they consider animate are really, of course, many natural uh, and you have to use an animate verb, he or she is, you know. So uh, taking the language is a real great experience. So it's things that are alive and things that are not alive? Is yeah, a blanket how? is inanimate, but a bird is animate, you know, of course. Uh, but there are other things. Trees are animate. A few unusual things like uh, buckets and spoons. We're still trying to figure those out. But it, it helps you to just view the world that way. And there's a whole different verb structure for animate things than there is for inanimate things. In the English language, we have idiomatic expressions with color. Like if I said, I'm feeling blue, you know, that means I'm feeling down, I'm not happy today. I'm feeling blue. And I was wondering if those kinds of idiom, you know, we say green with envy, for example, is another English expression. Um, I've never heard of any colors being associated with emotions. With moods. In the language. Not that they weren't. I mean, colors hit you on a subliminal level. You know what I mean? So who's to say that? I don't know. But I mean, to me, blue is the sky and it's gorgeous. (laughs) You know what I mean? Green are the plants. So we're looking at a painting and there's a blue sky and the light in the sky is animating everything that we see in the painting. Uh Shadows, light. So you would use the animate form of the color blue there. But if you were talking about, you know, that man's shirt is kind of gray-blue, I assume that's the inanimate. And I think what makes a conscious person is to be able to see past the assumptions that we just take for granted. And to me, that's part of what a museum is about. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people in museums say this, but we don't collect art. We collect people, and people engage with each other through the art. And that's the purpose of the museum's existence. Thank you, Shelley and Adam, for joining us for this exceptional conversation. Please come visit us at Woodmere this summer for two fabulous exhibitions. We're presenting the Woodmere Annual, our 81st juried exhibition, showcasing a range of Philadelphia artists and work selected by our juror, Doug Bucci. And definitely check out the Living World exhibition as well. It features both artwork and music from the artists at the center for Creative Works Studio. We also have an outdoor summer evening jazz program that explores great history of local music, and it's fun with a picnic basket, a friend, and a bottle of wine. For more information about these and other events at Woodmere, follow us on social media at Woodmere Art and online at woodmereartmuseum.org. Diving Board is produced by Stephanie Marutis of Cuvenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. And I'm Bill Valerio. Thanks for joining us.